Father in heaven, we come before you, we ask. Lord, our heart's desire is to give you praise, to give you praise for what Christ has done. Lord, we, we, at the end of the day, if, if we've done anything for your glory, it's we, we, what we've sung, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And so, Lord, we pray that to, this morning would, your word would speak to us, that it would heal, that it would convict if there is sin, it would uncover Lord, with the balm of Christ, come and cover it. Thank you, Spirit, for your work, how you take the things of Christ and pierce our hearts. May your word have its perfect work in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we are continuing, continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I was thinking about delaying this sermon chapter 11 uh, because it's about the Lord's Supper I was thinking about delaying it for our communion but that was a couple weeks away and I was thinking that uh, we have another sermon coming up and just as far as organizing is concerned I wanted to go through this the title of this sermon is called communing with Christ at his table what the importance is of his communion table and why we take it and how we are to take it. He says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 17, he says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or are you to despise, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Verse 23. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The re remaining matters I will arrange when I come. We take this large section as, as we look at it. Whenever we look at 1 Corinthians 11, oftentimes we look at it and we think, okay, this is the section we read before. This is uh, the section that Jeremy reads right before we pass out the elements and we have communion. What Paul is actually saying in this context, which is amazing, is that the directions for communion is given in the middle of a stinging rebuke to the church. This church had some problems. And as we've said before, every church got problems. If people say their church doesn't have problems, they're not being real. Why? Because as soon as there's people in the church, we all got problems. We bring with us all of our sin, all of our issues, all of our idiosyncrasies. And one of them was taking communion in an unworthy manner. See, when believers do not take their communion with Christ, with each other, and with each other, this communion that we share, this fellowship that we share, when you come to Christ, when we don't take it in the utmost importance, what happens is in the local church, divisions and disunity starts to set in. Disunity brings shame upon Christ and to his witness rather than enjoying the communion bought by Christ himself. I think you understand a little bit of that taste of that flavor when we were singing to Christ and we were all in unison singing to the glories of Christ. There's that taste, there's that flavor, there's that distinct fellowship that we share. Yes, this is Christ. Yes, he is who we should worship. Yes, we're all in unison singing to him. That is communion. Amen. Christ says by his life, his death, his burial and resurrection, Jesus paid the price to bring you to commune with him. He is also in so doing has placed you in the body of Christ. And as believers, we are to guard this sweet fellowship we have with Jesus himself, with God and the spirit and with each other. As believers dwell on the crosswork of Christ and of the communion he has made, the sin of disunity dissipates. We're focused now on something greater, greater than our differences, our background, our ethnic differences, our financial differences. All of those things come into play, our idiosyncrasies, what we like, what we don't like, foods we like, foods we don't like, all of those things. And you would be surprised how many little things can destroy a church. But God's word is given to you this morning so you would bask in your communion with Christ at the Lord's table. This is what the text means. So you would bask in your communion with Christ at the Lord's table. There are two ordinances Christ gives the church for his glory and for the health of the church. This is God's visuals to the church. In the New Testament, you notice that there's this complete change. From the Old Testament, everything was codified. Everything from the temple dimensions to the way you sacrifice. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, the emphasis now is the heart 
but he does give us two visuals. The first one is baptism. We understand what baptism is. In Matthew chapter 28, it says that we are to make disciples of all nations, and it says baptizing them. We just had a baptism. We were so encouraged. But what a baptism is supposed to signify and to tell publicly to the church before God himself is, something has happened to me. I have come to know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. So what baptism does as the first ordinance is it is the initial um, communion with Christ in the sense of it is the initial relationship. This is when I first came to know Christ. I'm telling you that something has happened to me and I want to publicly tell everyone by getting in the water. And then he gives us the second ordinance, which is communion. While baptism will tell the church, tell publicly that we have this initial relationship with Christ, that it just started, I was regenerated, I've come through the new birth. This, what communion does, what we take monthly here at RBC, we take it monthly. What communion does is it tells the world of not initial relationship with Christ, but continual. That not only Christ saved me and I have a relationship to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, but that I still am following Christ. I still love Jesus. He's still wonderful to me. He's still sweet to me. So you notice in verse 17, he says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. These this is some stinging words that Paul is saying. Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. He uses this word instruction, parangelon, which means to give a command. It's a military term. I'm telling you this is what you need to do, Paul. By the Holy Spirit, as an apostle called by Christ, says when you come together, you're doing it in the wrong heart. And this should be a stinging rebuke to all of us that when we do the things for the Lord, what really matters is the heart. Where is my heart when I do this? You see, mankind really likes religion on the outside because it's easier to do. Did you know that? Oh, I just have to do these things. I have to say these prayers. I have to count these beads. I have to light this candle. It's easier to do. And Paul points at their heart. Where is your heart, church? What is supposed to be sweet worship, you made it into rotten fighting and disunity. Oh, don't you love how the Bible is so refreshingly honest? This is not a church that puts on Sunday clothes and just says, hey, everything's okay. How are you? Good. You're good, good, good. And we just move on with our lives. This church got problems, right? Paul is saying, in essence, you are missing out on really what is the essence of true communion. This deep, deep fellowship and contemplation with the Lord and deep, deep fellowship and contemplation in the Lord with each other. Paul's heart is for them to repent of their fighting and bickering and to enjoy together what Christ has done and the fellowship he has supernaturally created to celebrate that in communion in the Lord's table. So this morning, 
the encouragement is the same, to bask in your communion with Christ at the Lord's table, or it's called the Lord's Supper, or some churches call it the Eucharist, or some churches call it communion. Number one, there are three exhortations that God gives us, that God gives you, gives me. When we're to think about communion, when we're to think about our fellowship with Christ and with each other, the first one is to honestly face any lingering conflicts. This weighs heavy. Honestly face any lingering conflicts. Paul is going to point out to them the utter hypocrisy when you say you're a Christian and you say you love Jesus and you have an argument with someone in the church and you do not go to them and confess and repent and reconcile, go through that process where we could really and truly sincerely love one another. There's nothing that would harm your shared communion in Christ faster than allowing bitterness and resentment and unreconciled relationships in the church. And I want to encourage you. I don't know what's going on in your hearts. I don't know if people have offended you or if you have offended someone and they're secretly mad at you or something like that. Or I don't know if that happens, but I want to encourage you let this be a lesson for us that we would grow and really pursue what Peter says, fervent love for one another. I think we're tired of old religion that's fake. I think we're tired of people saying they're Christians and not living it. I think we're tired of all... Are you not tired of this? I'm tired of this. Let's live in what God has called us to live in, in Christ. So he says, here's the report, verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as the church, this is amazing, Paul is going to call them what Jesus called them in Matthew chapter 18, you remember, when he talks about church discipline, and, and later on when he says, and Peter, upon you will the church be built. You remember that? Matthew 16. So he says here, in the first place, when you come together as a church, remember that you are the church. The word, ch word church is ecclesia. It means called out ones. Assembly. The gathering. The people of God. It became a technical term used in the New Testament. It's the blood-bought, redeemed people of God who were sinful, who were on their way to hell, and Christ saved them from their sins. Church! Notice in 1 Corinthians 1, keep your finger here, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is what Paul calls them. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes our brother. And notice the terms. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been, this is who, this is who these people are, sanctified in Christ. That means to be called as part. Saints by calling. With all who are in every place on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord and ours. And so very clearly, he is talking to those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one that God himself, Christ himself, placed in the body in 1 Corinthians 12 in the next chapter. 
And sadly, Paul has to say this. I hear that there's divisions. Divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. He says, in part, I believe it because they're probably exaggerated. But most of it was probably true. He says divisions. It's, a, it's an interesting word. Imagine there's people bickering. I can't stand this person. Let's take communion. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. He says divisions. The word for divisions is the word schismata in, in the Greek. It's where we get the word schism. You could hear it. It's when folks pick sides. Rather than all being under the lordship of Christ in one family. There's no agreement. They're not serving one another. This communion time was a time of arguing and fighting and self-indulgence. And we'll talk about that a little later, what that means. There was a huge economic strata. Notice he says here, just to give you a... um, He says, from those who have food and those who don't. So there's this huge economic strata. And what was happening was the rich people were taking care of themselves and the poor people were not being cared for in the church. And Paul says, you guys are supposed to be the church, brothers and sisters in a family. Some were rich, some were slaves. Aren't you supposed to be the church? Why are you fighting? Why aren't you dealing with this biblically? Where's the love and the humility? Where's the confession, repentance, and forgiveness that Christ himself exhibited, taught, motivates, give you strength to do? Notice the reason, verse 19, for there must also be, this is an amazing, an amazing verse. Just think about the weight of what's happening. Okay. People are fighting, and there are those who are still insisting on their way. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. They're insisting on their way. And it's not a doctrinal distinction. It's a preferential distinction. Because I want to do this this way. I want to take care of only myself and not others. And he says, For there must be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. This is an amazing, amazing verse. Why? Notice what's happening. There's a fight in the church and Paul says it must be. This word is the word day. It's used in other places where it, it is necessary. So he takes a little bit of an excursus and he's doing kind of like a, a God divine sovereignty explanation of why we have fights at church. It's amazing. Notice the weight of it. He says... There must, there must be factions among you. What's he saying? That in this fallen world, he says, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. In this fallen world, there will be, this is what he says, there will be those who claim to be Christians, who look like Christians, smell like Christians, get baptized, become members who will insist on their own way. And the Bible says, and they will fight for their own way, and the Bible says it must be that way. Why? So that those who are approved 
those who are genuine, tested and approved, that's the word, dokimadzo, right? Tested and approved to be genuine, real, sincere, may become evident. What's he saying? By the way they fight, by the way they carry themselves, by the sinful attitudes and by the manipulations and by the, by the words that they use, rather than coming together to reconcile, it becomes evident who the real ones are. You look at the text and you can't get around it. That's what the text means. God says it must be this way. Why? Sometimes you think that, you know, sometimes, and we have our own issues as, as churches, sometimes you think that problems in the church or folks who are rebellious or creating schisms, sometimes you think, what's going on here? God, I thought you were in control. God, I thought you were supposed to bless our church. What is going on? I thought church was simply supposed to be a good time. Sometimes churches, this is what they teach. Church is only a good time. Only good feelings. No bad days. Right? And God, God says, I don't want you to be naive. The reason that they have to come up is to show who is real. Those approved ones, one commentator says it, those approved ones are especially made manifest in adversity and hardship. And it is only those who are tried and tested saints that a church should entrust its leadership. This is what Paul was saying. Why? Because the factious want to fight. They want to divide. In Titus, it says, Titus 3, it says, reject the factious man after a first and second warning knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning and being self-condemned. His own desire is to be schismatic and divisive, and that proves that he, he should not be in fellowship. But Paul says it's necessary for factions to come about, but they should not be tolerated in the church as the unity is at stake. And so Paul gives us a little side view here no, God's in control. I, I, I texted one of my pastor friends this morning. He's going through an amazing trial of disunity. And uh, I just weep for him. It's awful. So awful. I mean, a lot of times we've had some good experiences with churches where there's a strong leadership who love Christ who are not manipulative. They actually love Christ and they want to glorify him. That's the church I came from when we planted and when we planted here. I love the unity we have here at RBC, but it's not so in most churches. I mean, a lot of you guys who have been in CBC and then have planted in RBC, you have not seen what it's like out there. It's, sometimes it's quite awful. And I just texted him this verse and I said, I'm praying for you. And he says, preach Christ, man. Thanks for praying. He goes, I'm seeing this lived out in front of me. They're fighting and they're bickering. It brings shame to Christ. When people play politics in the church. Here's a problem. Therefore, this is the exact occasion, the exact problem. He says, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. He says the Lord's Supper. So what was happening back then is when they would have communion, they would have a big old potluck. 
Much like we, what you, we used to do when we were free to do that. And hopefully we could institute that somehow again, right? It was a communion and what they called it was the agape feast. It was typically a potluck to remember Christ and then they would take communion. They would take the bread and the wine. And he says, when you guys get together, you're missing the whole point. You're supposed to be coming for spiritual food. You guys are just coming for food. He says, verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. What was happening was this. Okay, this is what was happening, okay? Uh, Brother Corinthian Manny would get up and give an announcement, okay? And he would say, much like our Manny, this is Corinthian Manny, he would say, um, uh, next Sunday we're having communion and we're going to have an agape fest. Okay, think potluck, okay? Let's celebrate Christ's sacrifice for us and our unity in him. But then these people, it says here, take his own supper first. Apparently, there were some people who had a little bit more money. They would come. They would come early with their own food, okay? So what was happening was all all this collection of people who are well-to-do, they would come early. Ooh, you're going to bring that food? I'm going to bring this food. And they would come early. Why? Because it says they would eat their food first. And they wouldn't share. So they would finish the meal. And just about as they're finishing, the poor folks would come in and say, Oh, I'm sorry, we don't have any more food. That would be quite sad, wouldn't it? They would eat first and not share. And they actually planned to eat their meals first. As the poorer would come, they would still be having, maybe finishing up their meal. And they are basically saying, oh, and they would rub it into their faces. Man, that was a good meal. Wish you had some. They were broken hearted. You imagine most, there's a lot, of, in 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of fights about food. Have you noticed that? Oh, man. People get bad about food. See, what was happening was there was apathy and mockery. Notice he says, and one, verse 22, and one is hungry. See, the ones who were poor would come. There would be no food for them. There was apathy from the better off Christians. They were like, oh, and it was mocking them. It was like, it was like when you're a kid and, and you would have ice cream and someone wouldn't and you would go, man, this is so good, oh, right? And now this is even, this even tops it off. He says, and one is hungry and another is, what does it say? What does it say in the text? Verse 22. Another is what? Drunk. Okay, so this is what's happening. These guys would bring in their best food, their best cuts of meat. They would have prime rib right here. They would have the best wine. And all the poor people would come in and and they would just finish it and they would drink so much wine they would get drunk. At church! Trying to sing praise songs while they're drunk. That church got problems. Verse 22. Paul says later, what do you not have houses to eat and drink? Can't you just 
if that's what you, all that you want, why don't you just do that at home? And then he says, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Despise means to look down. Shame means to humiliate. He says, when you tempt others and indulge, when others have great need, right in front of them, you look down and you humiliate the church. This person who you look across is supposed to be your brother and sister in Christ. Paul says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Now we laugh at this. This seems utterly ridiculous. Hey everybody, come over to a potluck and then you bring your food early and you finish it. All you see is empty Tupperwares. Oops! Sorry, right? We think it's ridiculous. But they started to fight. And imagine there might be a rich person, a well-to-do person, and then a poor person sitting next to each other. And there was bitterness. The rich person would be looking down. I can't believe we're in the same church. And the other person would, and the poor person would say, I can't believe that person is so unfeeling and unloving. And they're sitting, singing the song. They're passing the elements steamed at each other. Hypocrisy. Isn't it? Here's a a question. I don't want you to answer it now. You just answer it in your heart, okay? As a diagnostic, okay? Are you honestly facing any lingering conflicts? Are you really facing it? Are you really tackling it? Is there someone you're at odds with and have you really pursued to try and make peace the bible says in romans chapter 12 pursue peace with all men as far as is possible with you how can you ignore conflicts and still take communion and say i am walking with christ and i am caring for the body of christ it's a farce it's fake it's hypocritical you know it the church knows it and the watching world knows it why don't you take the first step towards reconciliation and ask for forgiveness for the sins you've contributed without making an excuse for them. I did this because you did this is not asking for forgiveness. You understand that? That's not working towards peace. See, something is greater at stake which the church in Corinth did not see. They did not see that the glory of Christ was at stake. All they saw was their food. Secondly, intentionally focus on remembering Christ. There ought, ought to be this intense, this, this intentional focus that the reason I'm here is to bring glory to Christ. I'm not here to fulfill my self-indulgence. I'm not here just to simply just say hi to people. I'm not here to be known. I'm here to glorify you, Christ, for what you've done. See, the whole point of the Lord's table is not food. It's not having better food than someone else, better wine than someone else, even having a full bed, a belly. In fact, it's not for self-indulgence of material food at all. The church lost its focus individually and corporately. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. When you are wrapped up in your desires, in your schedule, in your goals, and you, you cannot possibly be absorbed in the desires of Christ, 
If only your life mission is your life mission and not the mission of Christ. To glorify Him with who you are. To speak of His glory and to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. If that is not your mission, I tell you, you cannot bring Him glory. If your own comfort is your Lord, Christ's glory is not at your heart. And the church lost its focus. He says, and now we come to these words which are well read. We understand this. We read this in 1 Corinthians 11 a lot. He says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. This is not new instruction. I already taught you this, Corinth. I received this from direct revelation from God himself as an apostle. But I need to keep reminding you I delivered this to you. Verse 24, he says, when he had given thanks, he broke it. This is Jesus quoting Luke 22, which Brother Manny read. Our Manny, right? When he had given thanks, he broke it. This is Jesus. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Of course, Jesus is not saying that the bread is actually his body. We don't believe in transubstantiation. We don't believe in co-substantiation, which means that in some mystical way, his, his body is actually the bread. This is metaphor. This is what Paul is, I mean, excuse me, this is Jesus himself saying. He said it in front of the disciples. This is my body. His real body was in front of them. He said it metaphorically. This is a symbol this is what you remember me by. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. This bread was the symbol of the body Christ gave for his people. He wants them to know that the second person of the Trinity came down and put on flesh. Full humanity, full deity. And when he says, this is my body, I, he says, Jesus is saying, I am giving myself to you. No matter what Sunday school you go to, no matter what theology you learn, no matter what you learn in parenting, no matter what you learn in budgeting, how do Christians budget, no matter what you learn in all this kind of things that we wrap ourselves into, don't ever forget, I gave myself for you. I give my body. And, and here, I think one commentator said, said this, and I... I agree. Some of the most sweetest words in all of Scripture are these two words for you. For you. Maybe you come in here and you, and you say, Angelo, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the people I've hurt. You don't know the sins I've done in secret. He gave his body for you. Would you just but confess him and repent of your sins. Oh, Christian, we can't ever get away from this. Don't think you're too mature for this. This is all the sweetness. This is, this is the marrow. You know what I mean by marrow? I don't know if all of you, some of y'all don't eat marrow. Marrow, this is the marrow of Christianity where I pour it, I took, I take the bone and bop it out. The sweetness. The best part. This is the best part of Christ. He's with me and he gave himself for 
me. Not morality. Not how to do this and that. He died for me. He says, in remembrance, and I'm going to talk about that a little later. He says, in the same way he took the cup also in supper, saying, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Serena, in her testimony, she quoted Ezekiel. There's another one in Ezekiel 36. This is what the new covenant is. He says in verse 30, uh, Ezekiel 36, 26 is 27. I'll just read it to you. You could write it down. He says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. What God says is your heart that is of stone, that is unfeeling to God, that doesn't want God's people, doesn't want God's word, doesn't want to bow to God. He says, I will give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to take that heart of stone that is cold and unfeeling and callous towards the things of God, towards the things of Christ. And I will give you a heart of flesh that beats for me. And he says... I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And this is, what, this is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That every Christian, when they come to know who Christ is, he, he, his Holy Spirit comes in you and he indwells in you and he mediates the very presence of Christ such that you really do know he died for me. Not some abstract cross, not Jesus died on the cross for sins. No, he died on the cross for my sins. He died on the cross for me. And then he says, the second time he uses the word remembrance, it's not just to remember facts, but to really think and capture When you take communion, this is what he says. Your goal is to capture, to run it around in your mind and in your heart, the importance, the significance of the event, to dwell on his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sacrifice for us. Such that when you feel awful and rotten because you have sinned, that I can just remember what he did. And he promises, he promises he has washed away all of my sin. Oh, when people say this is not practical, they don't know what they're talking about. There is nothing more practical than knowing the forgiveness and the love of Christ. Amen? So now he goes... Um, in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, this should be regularly. He doesn't tell us how often. We do it every month at RBC. The first Sunday of each month. He says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what unites us. This is the same common confession. Until he comes because he's returning again. So if you're a believer in Christ, revel in Christ daily, bask in it. What you are to do is to marinate, is to bask, is to enjoy in these truths. It's not just knowing truths about Christ. It's actually treasuring what you know about Christ. Taking the Lord's Supper, table, communion for you. Bible says if you're not a if you're not a believer and you take it, 
It simply is an outside ritual with no reality behind it. Kind of like if you get baptized and you're not really a Christian. There's no reality behind it. And yet God says, Do you, well, if you don't know Christ, we want to invite you. That God created all of us to image forth his glory, to, to worship him. And we have all separated from him because of our sins. And the Bible says if we trust in Christ and repent of our sins, we will be forgiven. Would you do that today? Trust in him. Make this, by God's grace, this sacrifice for you by applying faith. Now, to bask in your communion with Christ, what you ought to do as you're resting in that, at the Lord's table, honestly face any lingering conflicts. Why? Because he's brought you into one body. Intentionally focus on remembering Christ. Why? Because anything else is a distraction. And number three, carefully examine your susceptible heart. There, this is dangerous. Carefully examine your susceptible heart because you're prone to play church. You, me, we're prone to play church. Look at verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What does that mean? You can take communion in an unworthy manner. Many ways to do this. You could take it without any heart. Just an empty ritual. You can take it while not really believing in Christ. Just doing the ceremony rather than the Christ who saves you. Or believing the ceremony saves you. It doesn't save you. You could take it with unresolved conflict as we've seen. You could take it with unrepentant sin which you are not willing to let go. Anything other than the highest regard and focus on Christ is unworthy of him, brothers and sisters. And we could be guilty of really disregarding and trampling on all that Christ is and accomplish. Then he says here, but a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The word there for examine is to have a regular this must be in our process as we come together to have this regular deep examination of our motives and the pockets of rebellion against Christ. Yes, we still have pockets of rebellion. And what you're saying on the outside, Lord, I take all of you, when you take communion, Lord, I take all of you, reveal any sin or rebellion and let me repent of it now. I commit to reconciling. Thank you that I am invited at your table. I can only eat this bread and drink this cup with you because of what you have done. Thank you for the present communion I have with you. That's what you're saying. Let it be true inside and out. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And then he says some shocking words in verse 30. For the reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Apparently, God himself disciplined people for flagrant disobedience. 
He will not be mocked. Weak and sick really does mean that. That folks who are in unrepentant sin or is bickering, he says, God himself is disciplining them, not condemning them. We don't, God doesn't condemn believers. He disciplines believers. Discipline means with an, a, a benefit outcome so that you would grow and so that you would learn. And he says here that some people have been weak, weak and sick. And now, please don't apply this like this. Oh, you're weak and sick? You must be being disciplined by God. That's not how you apply this text, okay? Casting judgment. Oh, you had the sniffles? Yeah, I know why. I know why. No, that's not how you apply this. This is supposed to be you examining yourself. Is God telling you something? And then he says, and a number sleep, which is a euphemism for actually dying. Like Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Remember, they were lying to the Holy Spirit. And they both died. Man, the church was really shocked. And Peter said, okay, I'm going I'm to preach. I bet you everybody was listening. All right, huh? I'm going to listen, Whatever. I would have been shocked. I would have been scared if Peter ever asked me a question. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Right? What do I answer? But what, what, what he's saying here is this is so sacred that sometimes if you're in unrepentant sin, God will take you because you're not listening. Then he moves on. If we have judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged he says, where we are spiritually, where we need to be, that's what you're, ta- you're talking about. I'm, I'm actually thinking about myself rightly. I'm confessing and repenting where I need to. I'm depending on the grace that is in Christ. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Notice he says, disciplined, not condemned. Believers are disciplined, not condemned. Okay? So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, here it is, verse 33. Wait for one another. Do you see that? Wait. So Paul is not saying don't have a potluck. He's just saying let's do this in a loving way where we care about each other. Let's wait for everybody. Wait till they're there. It's good to share the meal and not cut out a whole segment out of the church. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange. If you're coming simply for a meal and not to fulfill your spiritual hunger, you should just eat at home. This is what Paul is saying. So how do you bask in communion with Christ? How do you enjoy it? God gives us three exhortations. Okay? There is provision for conflicts. Yes, there is. He's given you power. He's given you the Bible. He's given you humility. You know you can do this. You can ask for forgiveness in the power of Christ. You've seen Christ go low from, in Philippians chapter 2, having equality with God. He did not regard it as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And then Paul says, what? Before that, he says, have this attitude. Go low. Confess, repent, reconcile, trust in Christ. There is provision to focus. The elements of communion are Christ's visuals for you. There is a provision for a susceptible heart, susceptible to sin, that is getting right and trusting in Him and looking at the cross. 
If your sin is getting bigger and bigger and your view of your sin is getting bigger and bigger and you're not looking at Calvary, you're not looking at the cross and the cross is not bigger than your sin, you're going to go down in despair, brother and sister. You're not even going to get out of bed. You're going to want to put the pillow over your head. The cross, your view of your sin, yes, it gets bigger, but the view of the cross should be overwhelmingly bigger. It drowns out your sin. He died for you. We just need to hear that. Bask, Christian. Enjoy, Christian. Celebrate, Christian. But we do this together. Amen. Father, we pray. We thank you. Oh, to dwell that you died for us. The sweet words. God, help us to be considerate and loving and kind. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of being selfish. Forgive us of of being hurt and not wanting to keep going. Thank you that there's all resource, all strength in Christ. Help us to sing in Jesus' name. Amen.